This is the audio from a recent Institute of Economic Affairs YouTube video. We've stripped the audio so that you can listen on the go. Issue of colonialism. Europe became rich because it went over to other parts of the world, conquered them, stole their resources. After 1800 globally, but particularly in like you know, leading, leading economies, it's just so big that it can't be explained by any transfer, right? So, you know, like the, the crudest version of the argument is like what the Brits took from India then fuel, you know, the resources extracted from India fuels for British Industrial Revolution. And that's, there's no evidence for this. Um, and it, it doesn't make sense, both in terms of the scale and size of the takeoff relative to the zero-sum transfers that we're talking about. You need a coalition for growth. And that coalition has to be willing to take on vested interests and rent seekers. Hello, and welcome to the Institute of Economic Affairs YouTube channel. I'm Daniel Freeman, Managing Editor here at the IEA. In 1700, the Netherlands was the richest and most developed country in the world. Probably um, the richest country that the world had ever seen up to this point. It was at the cutting edge of agriculture, shipbuilding and banking, and ruled over an empire that spanned from the Caribbean to Indonesia. Contemporary accounts marvel at the high standard of living that its citizens enjoyed. And yet, in modern terms, it seems extraordinarily poor. Its GDP per capita was the equivalent of $3,800 in modern values, which is on a par with modern-day Sudan. Despite losing its empire and its position at the centre of a global finance network, the average Dutchman today is almost 20 times richer than his 18th century forebear. Many parts of the world, indeed, have starting from a lower base, have increased and e have experienced an even more dramatic enrichment. The last 200, over the last 200 years, the world has experienced rapid and sustained growth that would have been inconceivable throughout much of human history. How did this transformation occur? Why did it occur when it did and where it did? And is this growth likely to continue or come grinding to a halt? All these questions are more and more are addressed in the book we'll be discussing today, How the World Became Rich, The History and Origins of Economic Growth. Um, I'm delighted to be joined to discuss this by uh, one of the book's authors, that's uh, Mark Kuyama, who joins us on screen. Um, Mark is an Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University and a Senior uh, Scholar at the MacArthur Centre. He specializes in economic history with a particular focus on the early modern period. Uh, in addition to the book we'll be discussing today, he is also the co-author of Persecution and Toleration, The Long Road to Religious Freedom, and has published count countless articles in academic journals. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Daniel. Daniel, uh, great to be here. Yeah. So, uh, I want to really start off with the book's title, which I think some people might find uh, a bit provocative, um, How the World Became Rich. Um, many people would say, okay, there are, there are some rich people in the world, but most of the world isn't particularly rich. And you certainly find plenty of examples if you open a newspaper of real grinding poverty, which uh, persists. So, what, what do you mean when you say the world is rich? 
Yeah, so that's a great question, and it, it is meant to be somewhat provocative. What we're drawing attention to is um, the startling prosperity of the majority of human societies by historical standards. So not by you know ideal standards. We would like many countries to be much richer. We would like people to be more prosperous than they are. We are aware of people in, in you know dire poverty, both in uh, very poor countries, but also in rich countries. Obviously, we don't think everybody is rich, but the world as a whole, on average, is, is much richer than it was in the pre-industrial period, so relative to about 200 years ago or more. So there has been a great enrichment, um, to use uh, Didier Mikoski's phrase, and that's what we're drawing attention to. So we're, we're framing it around that, that startling takeoff in, in growth, which we think is extremely uh, transformative. So, okay, when in your view does this... Um take off in growth really really get going yeah so that's also an important important question and subject to some uh, controversy so i would uh, i would say that the um the origins of modern economic growth in say britain or the netherlands can be seen a little bit earlier than we traditionally used to think so we often think about the industrial revolution as as yeah we, we've used the, we've used the phrase already take off and um, the more recent economic history work actually says look there are um, you know, as you, and as your opening um, opening alluded to, there's there there's seeds of prosperity in Northwest Europe, beginning really after um, starting to it after 1500, but certainly after 1600. Yeah, at the same time, in terms of like really rapid per capita GDP growth, that doesn't really take place till actually a lot later, about 1850. So the the growth process is is a little bit more gradual than than um, we sometimes think. And it really gets going after 1850 globally, but but the seeds of it are there in the 17th century, I would say. Okay, and so, yeah, you you mention actually in the book, you it's full of uh, really interesting statistics that even already by 1600, for example, England is about 40. Um, 40% richer in GDP per capita terms than Mughal India. Um, and this is, you know, as you say, 200 years before the Industrial Revolution. And also the Netherlands is uh, quite a way ahead of England. So what what do you think are some of the main factors behind this kind of deep, uh, long-running uh, growth, this sort of early divergence between... Uh, the western parts of other other parts of the world yeah so this again is uh, subject to a lot of uh, scholarly inquiry and you know new new evidence and data are continuously coming in and so you could think about uh, there being preconditions for for prosperity but you could also think that some of these um it, it didn't these preconditions did not make what eventually happened in england in the industrial revolution inevitable so uh preconditions are clearly um in some sense, things that Adam Smith knew, and things that you know the IEA is kind of famous for for um, for, for emphasising. So, uh, having a market economy, uh, trade, um, relative relatively uh, um, united, unified internal market. So, um, one of the things which is characteristic of, of England fairly early on is it doesn't have kind of internal tariffs or barriers to trade. So, even though it's quite a small country geographically and its population at this point. Is also relatively small in terms of market size, market access. It's relatively relatively leading, and um, the, you know the institutional foundations for um, 
England's long-run prosperity are have deep have deep roots, basically. So think about the common law, uh, Magna Carta. Those things have deep roots. They're not the cause. I don't want to. Uh, I'm not overclaiming. I'm not claiming these cause the industrial revolution. But think about these as preconditions, um, which are which are setting England and also the Netherlands up. Because they have similar institutions for relative pre, uh, prosperity by pre-modern standards. And that's going to be a precondition then for the later innovative. Uh, technological driven growth and if you think about india um even under the Mughals, and we don't have as good data and obviously there's a lot of variation across parts of india and and over time but uh, i think it's it's unambiguous that things like property rights and trade would have been less well established in, in india more contingent on the on the preferences and proclivities of an individual ruler less deeply enshrined um and war was pretty endemic in, in India uh, before before um, eighteen hundred, yeah, that's that, that's really interesting. I'm particularly interested in this idea of sort of having a unified internal market and and the lack of tariff barriers and also property rights. What one of the things that struck me is that many of these features of kind of Smithian growth that you have in England in in say the sixteenth century you would seem to also have in, say, the Roman Republic, for example. In fact, to a significantly greater extent when you're dealing with a unified internal market. You know, in, in the Roman Empire, you have, um, you know, a, a, a freedom of trade in the whole Mediterranean basin, something that has never occurred since. And yet, according to the sort of statistics in your book, we don't really get uh, a massive increase in per capita per capita GDP. And we certainly don't see um, anything like an industrial revolution in the classical period. So do you, do you have any sort of explanation for that or theories? It's a great question. Recently, I've just read a new book since writing our book called Pox Romana, which actually I think sheds some light on this. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting question. So and, and you can also comparably say, I should add, that uh, China in the 18th, 17th and 18th century under the Qing dynasty also has a very big unified market and, and, and some evidence, at least at its high point, that its market is also integrated. So I think about this market integration point as a, a, perhaps a necessary condition, but by no means a sufficient one. And I'm sure we'll get to some of the distinctive things which arise in, in England, particularly after 1700, which are not there in, say, China and not there in the Roman, Roman Republic and Empire. And I think uh, that, that's going to be where one of the action is, so innovation. So in the case of Rome, um, yeah, so they definitely have this unified market economy. Peter Terman talks about this. Now, are there institutions otherwise set up for growth? I think it's a bit of an open question. The author of uh, Pogs Romana, book I mentioned, Colin Elliott, thinks that actually a lot of their policies resemble those of kind of dysfunctional um, sub-Saharan African governments in the 20th century in terms of favouring s- distributing resources from farmers, like, ex- like really treating farmers very badly and benefiting cities. And so we also think of Roman Republic and Empire as prosperous because its urbanisation is very high. And Rome is a very big city. But hmm. part of this is to kind of a, a, somewhat of a tribute economy. Um, I think in a book we also mention incentives for technological change. And so there's a, you know, a long-standing hypothesis which... Um, we, we think has merit, which is that in, in a slave economy, so Roman Republican Empire at its height really has a lot of, lot of slaves. And so that, that, that seems to change the incentives for labor-saving technological change. Um, 
there's some interesting clues as to Roman attitudes to technological change in the in, in, in some of the sources, Suetonius and Tacitus. I think there's a story in uh, the biography of Tiberius where someone, um, some guy claims to have invented a device and, and Tiberius says, if you invent this device, and I unfortunately can't recall the exact nature of this device, it's some kind of mechanical device. And he says, these people will be put out of a job. And so he has the man execute it. And, you know, it's one of these stories that Asian historians tell, but it seems to be indicative of, of the types of attitudes towards technological progress they had. The other point I would say, which is, again, I think unproven, but uh, of interest, and you're probably familiar with, is the, the, the point associated with McCoskey about a bourgeois culture. So the Dutch Republic and 18th century England have a bourgeois culture. Romans do not seem to. Um, again, I don't think we've got great evidence for this yet, but I think mm. it's an intriguing possibility. So, so is this, I, I think you do bring this up in the book, is this the kind of idea that, in the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, if you make a load of money in in trade or whatever, the whole point of making money is to give up making money so you can retire to your estate and live uh, in leisure and read, you know, Homer and whatever. Whereas in the Dutch Republic and then in England in kind of the 18th into 19th century, um, much more prestige is is attached to uh, living like a bourgeois and continuing to reinvest your money in new enterprises. Is that yeah, kind that, of that's that's it? the argument, and, and 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 it's really you know been pushed forward in a very pro- original, provocative way by by Dietrich McCloskey. I think um, I think right now it's it's a hypothesis. We don't really have evidence, good evidence. To test it, but I think it's a it's it's definitely one of the contenders I would say for explaining this this what we see. Yeah, that's that's a, a, a really interesting point. As as are your your two points about sort of slavery um, seeming to inhibit um, in, industrialization or, or or labor saving devices because it makes more more sense to just throw more slaves at the problem rather than you know invest in 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 risky risky capital um on on this topic actually of of bourgeois culture what one of uh in your book you sort of outline five categories uh that have been used to explain um why uh rapid economic growth took off in in some parts of the world and not others um and these are uh, so geography institutions culture demographics and and colonialism um of those, if you if you had to kind of pick one or two that you would ascribe the most significance to, uh, which would you go with? So I'm glad you said one or two rather than just one, because um, I think, mm. um, and this is you know for people interested in reading a book, we um, we, yeah, the first section of a book is really outlining these four separate theories, and like you know really not so much pushing our own hypothesis or theses, but really saying these are what other authors have drawn attention to and giving them like a the fairest shake possible. And but the, but the conclusion I think they really should hopefully draw from that exercise is that on their own, any one of these explanations runs, in, runs into some problems. And it's precisely the, the, the richness is in the interaction of, of them. So uh, the attempt to kind of narrow it down to one factor, which some previous authors have tried to do, I think is just profoundly uh, misguided. And, and they, they, you know, it's for richness is where they intersect. 
So to think about the Roman case, you know, we, I just, you know, gave you a cultural story. But that cultural story, in my view, is clearly predicated on institutional, the institutions of the Roman Empire. The fact it's a centralized empire, it's autocratic. Um, you know, if the emperor suppresses an innovation, that's it. Whereas in other, you know, in, in a more uh, polycentric, fragmented, late medieval, early modern European environment, basically one, in the, in, one, innovate, one innovator can't be suppressed by one ruler. So, like, the cultural story must interact with its social story. And that's normally um, where, I, where I think both me and Jared kind of land in terms of our own research as well, really thinks institutions are very important. Culture also is important. So the intersection of those is probably where the most interesting action is, which is not to say that geography doesn't, doesn't matter as well, um, or demography or colonization, but, but probably a little bit less so. Um, so, like, geography, for example... Um, access to the Atlantic is, is part of the story for the rise in, in, in prosperity of the, Atlant- of, of, of the Netherlands and, and, and the United Kingdom after, after 1500. But of course, it's not sufficient because Spain and Portugal have, have excellent access to the Atlantic as well. So, so these things, geography matters as well, but, but the ones we really, I think, are most interested in are institutions and culture and how they interact. Yeah. Yeah, I, what 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 I I I I found that as well in the book that sort of institutions and culture feel as if in some ways they're a broader category on as you know they're a single category in some ways and that they kind of interact with each other and also what I really enjoyed was about how you sort of um, outline that um, uh, culture is not a sort of fixed thing um it interacts with historical events and can change over time um one of the most interesting examples i think from from the book is um how um so regions in africa which were particularly heavily in sub-saharan africa that were particularly heavily affected by the slave trade um, today, those regions still have lower levels of social trust and particularly trust of strangers than areas which were less affected or, or not affected at all. And it's, it's an example of how it's not really a case of like good cultural traits or bad cultural traits. It's that, you know, if, if, if a stranger who turns up in your village might be trying to con you into... A lifetime of servitude or be a scout for a raiding party well it's probably quite useful to be really suspicious but often these traits persist long after the sort of circumstances in which they emerge um uh, apply and so they can become uh, detrimental if say you're trying to set up um a, a company or something like that having having high levels of social trust becomes really useful and being automatically destructive of a, a stranger is a disadvantage um yeah that's a great great example it's it's yeah so this is nathan nunn's work mostly and it's yeah it's fantastic fantastic uh example of how these two things interact i would say i think that part of the problem with um people with with how people have addressed this question in the past is they've looked at it through a, a normative frame so there's been a sense in which like um, cultural arguments been associated with kind of um, a, a, a kind of a, 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 I would say a crude Protestant work ethic. Sorry, so like you know, like not what Max Weber actually wrote, but what people kind of think he wrote, which has been in some sense 
Protestantism, uh, kind of Anglo-Protestantism is about entrepreneurship and hard work. That's why, you know, Britain was the first industrial nation. It's why America became the richest country in the world in the 20th century. And so this is kind of good, right? It's, we're, we're, mm. we're very proud of this. And um, I mean, naturally, if, you're, if you have that approach, then other people will go react against it and think that mm. this, this type of approach is very, um, you know, uh, loaded or Eurocentric, whatever word they want to use, and then they dismiss it. But by dismissing it, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater because clearly these cultural traits matter. It's just we should try and divorce our analysis of them from like whether we think they're good or bad because they, yeah, they could be useful in some other settings, detrimental in other settings. Yeah, yeah. And uh, another example on on this, which has been talked about more m more widely, is also um, it, it's partly in your demographic chapter. Actually, is the, the European marriage pattern and how um, kind of the the Catholic Church's ban on marrying your cousin basically help uh, resulted in uh, the breakup of kind of European kinship networks and clan networks. Which which meant that um, well perhaps you could talk a bit about um, how that affected European yeah. development in your view. So this is um, you know um, we're we're here basing it on a fantastic work by um, Joseph Heinrich and then um, co-authors people like uh, my colleague at Fred Grayson, Jonathan Schultz. And so I think it's uh, I mean although the, the origins of this hypothesis go back like anthropologists think, you know, like Jack Goody at Cambridge also had a somewhat similar idea. So it's a long-standing hypothesis. So I think it's. It's very intriguing and, and quite well, um, um, quite good evidence for it now. So um, essentially the argument is the Catholic Church, by not intentionally, but in some sense they wanted to, well, Christianity already has this emphasis of, you know, d you know like setting aside your family for, mm. for God, basically. So that's in Christianity. So there's a, there's a sense in which the early, early Christianity gives rise to a form of individualism. Because mm. your personal relationship with God, that is more, whereas previous religions had a form of ancestor worship. So pagan, Roman paganism, you worship your, your ancestors to some degree. And uh, the kinship group is very important for both ancient Romans, and it's very important for, say, people in places like China, and it's extremely important in the Middle East. And Christianity mm. undermines it, but the specific elements of medieval Christianity is, is so you, they really go full on on this ban on marrying cousins. And it could be for institutional reasons. It could be because the, the, the family is just a rival to the church. And, you know, we don't need to go into the details. It's not a deliberate intention to kind of necessarily develop individualism, but it has this, this, this consequence. So what, um, you know, people like um, Heinrich Schultz and, and their co-authors demonstrate is that places which had more of this marriage ban, particularly Jonathan Schultz's work, um, basically end up becoming more Republican and more, they have more quasi-democratic institutions in, in the Middle Ages. And so um, North and South Italy is, is an example of this. So Northern Italy is kind of part of the Carolinian and Holy Roman Empire. So they, they enforced the marriage ban in Northern Italy. And we, but in, in Southern Italy, which is uh, partly Byzantine, partly Arab dominated, or, and it's, it doesn't get as influenced by these institutions, they, uh, they're more cousin marriages. And and basically, when you have cousin marriages, you reinforce a kinship group. So you have this kind of idea of my family against the world, right? I'm, mm. I'm more loyal to my brothers, to my cousins, than I am to outsiders. I'm going to treat you differently. And that matters. It gives you some advantages because, you know, family firms can work. But it becomes problematic when you want to cooperate with, with non-kin, non with outsiders. 
And it's problematic yeah. for how democracy works as well, because, um, you know, as you'll know, in developing countries often around client relationships. Exactly, precisely, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you, you know, your clan is voting for this candidate. He's from your larger ethnic group, so you vote for him, as opposed to evaluating the candidate on the actual program. Mm. So, um, ah. and, 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 and so, the, so if you look at a map of cousin marriage prevalence today, it kind of predicts things like demo democracy and rule of law. Um, so it's a very important and hard-to-move kind of... Um, uh, uh, variable, which reflects kind of deep cultural preferences. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. Um, on, on the point of non-intentionality, it, it, it might be interesting that I think um, uh, Thomas Aquinas, actually, one of the grounds he gives for justifying marriage um, is, is that it helps to build bonds of, as he calls it, friendship between Christians. And so, and which is what I think he uses to justify bans on marrying your cousin, in that it helps to sort of create a network of friendship, sort of beyond your immediate family, which turns out to be be quite useful if you're trying to build um, institutions on a on a national basis or or, or that kind of thing. Um, I want to uh, come on to this issue of colonialism because. One one kind of argument which, if you want to put it in its crudest form, is that basically uh, Europe became rich because it went over to other parts of the world, conquered them, stole their resources, and that's how it became rich. Um, um, do you think that's... Well, do you think that's sort of that version is credible and is it or is there a version of this argument that is stronger than that sort of kind of um, straw man version that i've given yeah so i'm actually glad you put it that way because i think it's exactly the right way to frame this which is to say there's a there's a crude version there's a sophisticated version of the argument and you'll get like you know activists or like you know like you know like Activists will say the crude version, and that will be popular on kind of TikTok. And then sophisticated academics will have a have a, more, have a better version. We could put, like, you know, we can. I think the crude version could be dismissed in a, in a just by looking at the numbers, right? Uh, the scale of the economic takeoff we observe after eighteen hundred globally, but particularly in like you know leading leading economies, is just so big that it can't be explained by any transfer, right? So you know, like the, the crudest version of the argument is like what the Brits took from India, then fuel, you know, the resources extracted from India fuels for British Industrial Revolution. And that's, there's no evidence for this. Um, and it, it doesn't make sense, both in terms of the scale and size of the takeoff relative to the zero-sum transfers that we're talking about. And it doesn't make sense as well, because every empire that we know of is, has been extracted, the Assyrians, the Romans. Yeah. Um, so, so transfers can, you know, I, I mentioned Rome earlier, like the, the city of Rome is undoubtedly being boosted by transfers of resources from the colonies, like from the, from the cities and mm. countries like the concrete. So you, you can get individually, individuals can become rich, a city can mm. grow to an enormous size based on these transfers, but you're not going to get a change in the structure of the economy such that will drive continuous increases in productivity. So let's set, set that aside. And then, um, but of course, there is a more sophisticated version of this thesis. And and that may or may not have merit, uh, depending on you know like on how it's 
how it's advanced. And that is, is that there's some kind of interaction between the, 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 the colonial enterprises which are taking place in the 17th and 18th century, of which, you know, Dutch republics are leading exemplar, as are Portugal and Spain, and then a little bit later, England and Britain. Um, there's some interaction between that and, and the takeoff of the industrial economy. And I can get to those, that more sophisticated version now. Um, so in the British case, it really centers, I think, around the Caribbean and, and the, uh, the, the sugar economy in places like the Bahamas, uh, Jamaica. And um, the, 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 that is very profitable. It's like, it's, that's like the jewel in the crown of the empire. And um, that, that's partly where, that's where a lot of us, more things are going there than when they're going to see um, the plantations in, in, in Virginia and South Carolina at this point. And so there, is there a link between that, basically, and the industrial takeoff? And um, our reading of it, me and Jared's in our book, was actually, was actually, we were summarizing like the latest research of the time, and we somewhat came down negatively on, on, on this lake uh, for the following reasons. That, that was that there's no direct, there's little direct link between these profits and what's happening in, say, Lancashire or Manchester in terms of setting up cotton textile mills. The, the guys yeah. who are um, innovators in the north of England doing this are not linked really directly to the slave trade. And the other thing we, we, we argued was that the size of these profits don't seem to be that large enough to move a needle in terms of GDP growth. Mm. Uh, I would say there's been a more, somewhat more recent research since, um, since we published the book, some of which we've digested. Uh, particularly was a paper by uh, Stefan Helblick, um, Stephen Redding, and Joachim Voff, which argues um, uh, ingenious evidence based on the distribution of people mentioned in the, in the um, compensation of, uh, for the freedom of slaves, freeing slaves in 1833. So in 1833, Parliament uh, passed a law freeing the slaves and, um, and the slaveholders or people who had land which was linked to slavery were compensated. And to be linked this with like local economic development. And they argue there is a link there is a correlation and it might be causal between local kind of capital intensivity of agriculture uh, and, and, and slave wealth. So the idea is some of these families earned these profits in, 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 in the colonies and it was, it did allow them to make local agriculture and local manufacturing more capital intensive. Um, there's also a book, which I've not really digested yet, uh, also published by Policy by... Um, um, Huds, Bergen Hudson making this claim. So I would say that um, when it comes to the more sophisticated claims, that I'm not re- we're not ruling out that there's a link, basically. Uh, the, 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 the decisive question of a big question is like, um, is a counterfactual one, which is would the Industrial Revolution have happened in the absence of this? And these studies are not really, well, they're not going to be able to answer that in some sense. I don't know if we will ever be able to answer that question. Um, so there's a difference between saying, look, the British economy, we, we don't, deny, no one denies it was, it was a meshed in empire and colonization, um, and, and saying that this is the cause of, of long run economic growth. Hmm. Yeah. Especially as mentioned, the, the divergence does sort of begin to some extent before you really get large scale, scale colonization by the, by the English state. Um, one, one of the things I also found interesting, actually, on this colonization point is there are circumstances 
Uh, not so much in Britain's case, but in the case of Portugal and Spain, where a colonial windfall seems to actually be detrimental to long long run economic growth. Um, can, can you perhaps explain why why that would be the case? Getting loads of silver from America that sounds like you know great news. Yeah, so, so it's a great question, and it's exactly gets back to this idea of interactions, right? There's an interaction between colonization and domestic institutions. And in, in the Iberian Empire, um, there's a long-standing view that this is, this is negative. Um, now, um, uh, you can think about the, the underlying economics of this as kind of a political economy public choice story, whereby um, it's, a bit, it's like um, a phenomenon we observe in modern countries, just the, the resource curse. Um, now, some kind, not every country falls into the resource curse. It seems to depend perhaps on your initial level in, institutions. So the fact that Norway discovered oil in the North Sea and so on, that was good for Norway, and the Norwegians have not been corrupted by the oil. But, but diamonds in the Congo um, you know, are corrupting in some sense because they, they incentivize people to go into one industry where like, you know, it's very extractive, um, monopoly rents are to be had, and it can, it can, um, it can have both... Um, it can both lead to the institutions uh, declining because people just want to grab these kind of fixed resources. So there are these rents to get in this industry. Let's fight over these rents as opposed to doing manufacturing or innovating better production processes in our own kind of industries. There's also a straightforward uh, kind of what's known as a Dutch disease effect, which is that your currency becomes overvalued due to this inflow of, of, of resource rents. And that then makes your other exports less competitive. And so in the case of the Iberian empires, there's kind of some evidence of both. Um, uh, people, scholars, the scholars, you know, sometimes some scholar, scholarship has somewhat uh, modified or disputed the idea that the Spanish were always autocratic. Uh, they, they pushed back the institutional divergence between England and Spain to being later than, than we used to think. But I think even if you take that as, as given, it's undoubtedly the case of the, the silver inflows from the Americas strengthen the crown and preclude the formation of kind of part of uh, or development or strengthening of parliamentary equivalents of parliaments or other non-royal kind of forces in society which can act as a check on royal power so right. so spain becomes more centralized more autocratic less less um less of a consensus-based state whereas in england it goes the other way yeah because because in spain the king doesn't need to ask parliament as much for for taxes because he is able to rely on this flow of silver from yeah, Peru. Exactly. Whereas in England, the absence of that actually helps to build these institutions that are really good for economic growth in in the long run. Um, moving to sort of more recent history, uh, one of the areas you deal with is the um, the Eastern Tigers, countries like South Korea, Taiwan. Uh, and and a, a little bit before that, uh, Japan that had this really impressive um, economic growth in in the late twentieth century from a very low starting point. Um, why why were these economies so successful in in reaching basically um, Western standards of living, whereas? other countries such as india have struggled so much more yeah so it's a great question i think it's uh, occupied you know fascinated many people and i think um there are competing stories out there 
Uh, you know, some people kind of emphasize um, you know, the role of the state. Other people emphasize the role of, of trade. And um, uh, other people would talk about culture or kind of preconditions which were favorable long-run development. And, you know, like, there's some element of truth in all of these stories. So I would say that after World War II, so let's begin after World War II, Japan is devastated. Places like South Korea are very poor. Uh, places like Taiwan, devastated and relatively poor. Um, there is potential in the world economy for what economists call catch-up growth. So the standard solo model story, but like the frontiers of the United States, it's really achieved pretty impressive living standards, technological development, and so on. Um, and if you can import some aspects of that, that, te- that technology, that, that bundle of technology and institutions, you can, um, you, you can get relatively fast catch-up growth because your labor is relatively cheap. So if you can develop manufacturing you know, and, and, and organize it properly and, and produce high-quality products, which is difficult to do, requires technical know-how, it requires infrastructure, requires a kind of integrated value tra- chain in your domestic economy. But if you could do it, you could kind of out-compete the leading economies. Uh, and that's basically what Japan does in, in, in automobiles, basically, to take an example, and, and, and high electronics as well. In the 1950s, no one in America would have ever thought they would buy a Japanese car. But by the 1970s, Japanese cars are ubiquitous. So, like, that the Japanese are able to outcompete the Americans of a margin of, like, cheap, reliable automobiles. Um, and so, um, so, in some sense, from a basic econ perspective, like, setting aside, like, you know, the, the macroeconomics, we, you know, you might study in college where institutions of culture don't really come up, in some sense, it's unsurprising, you might think. But then the puzzle is, why is it only these East Asian economies which do it? Why, have, why, why does, like... Why does Argentina or Brazil, why aren't they manufacturing cars and, and competing in American markets? Why isn't Sub-Saharan Africa doing it? And so there you, you, you get to institutions, and I say maybe culture, but particularly institutions, that um, the East Asia Tigers are not university democratic. Some are, some aren't. Uh, but they are university states which kind of achieve some measure of, of rule of law, uh, reliability, and have a treat kind of, you know, market participants. So even if South Korea is a dictatorship until like, the late 1980s, it, it, it's a pro-business dictatorship where, where the property rights are relatively well respected and preconditions for, for, for business are really, are really bad. And they're pro-business um, regimes, which are also pro-exports. And so this is called export-led growth. What, what matters here is that the conventional wisdom post-World War II so how to industrialize was basically infant industries and industrial policy. So the logic was, yeah, the, lo- the logic was um, let's have tariffs and subsidies because like right now, say, let's take Brazil, Brazilian car manufacturers can't compete in America because we're not ready yet. You know, we don't have the productivity, um, but we will be if we can develop our own domestic market to so protect the domestic market. That's India, the case of India, very high tariffs, very strong subsidies, a lot of regulation to boost the domestic uh, industries and allow it to basically, you know, build a domestic market for its own manufacturing goods. But the problem about doing that is you create monopolies and you, you lose any incentive to innovate. So if you're an Indian automobile company, why improve the basic kind of car they have in the 50s, which is based on a Morris mine, actually? Like why, mm. why make it better? Because you have a domestic market. Hmm. So, but, but if you're South Korea or Taiwan, let's say South Korea, like they, there's no 
There's no world in which if they just market to South Korea, that they will develop a big enough market to, to sustain a car industry. So from very early on, they know that Hyundai and Daewoo and these other cars, key is, they know that like the goal has to be to enter export markets. And that forces them to be competitive internationally. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's I think, in- crucial. Yeah. And yeah. There's, there's, there's enough. Yeah, the, whereas the Indians don't need to do the Brazilians don't need to do that. There are other explanations given. So there's a role of industrial policy and state policy. And um, I think the, the jury here is, out, is kind of mixed. There's some evidence that this is supportive. But when you look at, say, the Japanese um, industrial policy, which is governed by this descent of Amita, um, they, really, they, re- they really focus on basic, uh, basic industries like steel, basically, uh, which the Japanese do do well in. They do, but, but they're not focused on, like, electronics, let alone, they're not anticipating Nintendo, basically, which is obviously a huge success story of the Japanese economy by the 1990s. Right. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really interesting. I thought as um, a final question, I'm, I, I'm not sure if it's one you'll be able to answer, but um, if you were to, is there any single piece of advice you could give to a current countries say in sub-Saharan Africa or anywhere in the world that is um, has not gone through this hugely accelerated catch-up growth it's the single it's a single piece of advice whether economic institutional or, or whatever that you could give to pretty much any underdeveloped poor country in order to achieve this kind of level of growth or greater growth than it's achieved before so, so it's the hardest piece of advice, but it's it's very fundamental, which is in some sense getting the politics right. And but what does getting the politics right mean? It means having a coalition. Basically, you need a coalition for growth, and that coalition has to be willing to take on vested interests and rent seekers. So, uh, Stefan Durkin um, has a book about this. So, in some sense, it's not like democracy versus dictatorship. Uh, as much as obviously we want democracy to flourish and you know, strongly support democratic values, but it's, it's, you have to, the institutional setup for, for growth is basically one where there's a, there's a, there's a coalition in charge of a politics who are, who are willing to make sacrifices and, and push, push the economy towards growth. So that, that's going to be different in different settings. That's why you see kind of um, upticks in, in growth across divergent regimes. So, you know, like China, in the 1980s, or Ethiopia, in, until recent years, actually, you, you have some coalition of interest who are willing to, say, push pro-market reforms or open up export markets. And um, But this is the hardest thing uh, to get right, because who knows? I, 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 politics is unpredictable, and I don't know really off, offhand like, whether a given um, group of people are going to be able to commit to this to this set of reforms. But I think beyond that, there's no single silver bullet. Everything is to some degree context dependent. So for example, someone like Bangladesh, because of its its proximity to East Asia and the fact it's got um, you know uh, a lot of coastline, Bangladesh can really develop based on cheap textiles, like you know, t-shirts, mm. you know, and, and that as can be it now, but Bangladesh, like, we know in some sense, going back to the Industrial Revolution, we have a track record how countries can move up a value chain and industrialize, beginning with te- textiles. It's how Britain industrialized 
Japan was yeah. a leading textile manufacturer. So in some sense, we, we have this laid out. But if you're like Sudan, uh, you don't have access to this geography. You don't have access to, to cheap water-based technology. Forget about it. Like, you know, you'll never be able to become a, a textile manufacturer, I think. So it's going to be a different industry that's going to have to be the one, one that matters. And it's, so a degree of institutional specific knowledge is, is, is going to be important. You can't come in. I think this is a problem with a lot of economic policymaking in the past. You can't come in with a, with a plan, uh, even a free market plan, and say this is how you, you develop. Yeah, it, it's country specific. But one thing that seems to be consistent if you, is you do need political consensus that favor in favor of growth and being willing to make sort of sacrifices and and commit to that rather than just subsisting on you know rent seeking, which which is also an issue in developed economies like ours. And anyone who's tried to deal with the British planning system will probably be sympathetic to that point of view. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah. But, well, that is, um, I think, all we have time for. Um, It's been a really interesting discussion. So uh, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on. Uh, If you've enjoyed our conversation, uh, you might want to consider buying Mark's book, also written with uh, Jared Rubin, uh, How the World Became Rich. And it's published by uh, Polity, available in all good bookshops. Um, You might also, if you've liked our discussion, like to consider liking and subscribing to this YouTube channel for more interviews, discussions and debates on similar topics. Um, Anyway, thank you once again for coming on, Mark. Thank you, Daniel. It's been uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's been great.